0: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss.
1: All right. Well, welcome back to The Psychology of Depression and Anxiety. I am incredibly excited today because I have a guest for, A, for the first time in a while. I haven't had any guests in a while. And B, somebody I've been wanting to talk to on here or on some form of content anyway for like over a year and we're finally doing it. She goes by The Truth Doctor on social media. You might know her as Dr. Courtney Tracy. Courtney, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you so much for having me, Scott.
1: Absolutely. We have have some awesome topics to get into today, but just really quick before we get into that, could you just give us a brief introduction for anyone who doesn't know your background?
0: of course thank you my name is dr courtney tracy i'm a licensed clinical social worker and a doctor of clinical psychology i'm licensed in california specialize in borderline personality disorder and substance use disorders and primarily my clinical work has been with co-occurring disorders in the levels of care from detox to intensive outpatient Mm
1: So you and I could probably have like seven different topics we cover, (laughs) but the main reason I wanted to have you on today is to talk about borderline personality disorder, because my channel and the content that I create, what I think makes it really land for people is that it's all based on lived experience. And I talk a lot about not just from a clinical psychologist perspective, but also just from a person dealing with it perspective. I talk about mood and anxiety disorders, depression, anxiety, et cetera. And people are asking me to cover all these other topics. And I don't want to become one of those creators who basically just has a video version of Wikipedia where it's you know, you know, I, I can give you all the, the clinical information about that, but I can't speak to it with the same level of depth. I can't be like, yeah, I know what that's like. Here's what it's like to live with that. And borderline personality, personality disorder is one of the most, probably the most requested topic we've had. And I, I, it instantly was like, oh, I know who I want to talk to about that. So that's where we're going to focus today. I like to just get right to the serious stuff. That's kind of my kind of my zone. And and I got a few topics for us today. But the one that stood out to me the most, and and I suspect we'll have a lot to say about this is so a person gets diagnosed with a mental health condition that is essentially thought as far as we understand personality, personality disorders to work is essentially considered to be just kind of like baked into who you are forever, right? Like this is not a, we don't consider this to be a curable thing we don't necessarily have a plan we can implement for you for you to say do these things and you will one day not have borderline personality disorder so mm-hmm. with that in mind what what's the end game basically for a person with an incurable mental illness H- how do you organize your life around that and build something worth living because that mm-hmm. you know that's a 10 minute question yeah <laughs> what no. would you say about that
0: I think it's a great question. And I love the way that you've led up to it because I mean, I've known for a long time that I've had borderline, but when I first created my platforms, it took me a little bit to come out and say it and to sort of be a representation for it. And part of that is because it is known By the general public and by a significant amount of clinicians to be incurable so for a clinician to come on and say I have borderline personality disorder that can be very alarming it's like what the fuck do you mean like you're very unstable, how are you helping people stabilize from their perception. The way that I think about borderline personality disorder is the same way that I think about every mental health condition or disorder and it what it is, is that. Every symptom is a symptom of the human condition. If we even think about uncontrollable anger, which can be a symptom of borderline personality disorder, anger in itself is normal, typical, expected. It's the proportionality of it, the frequency of it, and whether or not it's appropriate based on what's going on for the person. So is borderline personality incurable? No. (laughs) um i think that there are ways to live with it what i say these days is i don't have borderline personality disorder but i have borderline personality because i know how i function my brain was developed in a certain way with a limited number of traits for me to react to my environment both internal and external the goal for someone with a disorder such as borderline personality disorder is to learn to live with that trait or those behaviors, minimize them to a normal level, like a normal human being. And I'm saying the word normal a lot. And I want to emphasize that there's no normal human that we're trying to meet, no archetypal or prototypical human, but there is normal for your life. And your circumstances and the goals that you have. So, incurable, no, human, yes, S- causes so much suffering for the individual and the people that it affects, yes, but there are solutions. Mm-hmm.
1: Oh, I just love how you said that. And, like, it's so true that, you know, thinking of mental health conditions as, as curable or not curable is a little bit of like a false dichotomy anyway, because we don't actually. N- measure purely objective constructs right like we go just based on like how a person acts and how a person is functioning and if a person gets to the point where they're no longer functioning in a way that looks disordered at that point we you know if you just met that person today and had no piece of paper in front of you saying they have this thing you would not diagnose them with that thing so that could be thought of as a cure it's i guess to some degree it's kind of semantics i suppose but i mean that's really similar to what i tell people who are dealing with severe mood or anxiety disorders because if you look at the clinical literature on that stuff it paints a pretty bleak picture too last meta analysis i looked at which it was a few years ago so this might be a little bit out of date but i think it said something like about 10% of people reach a state of like total symptom remission where you you just don't see anything pathological anymore And about 10% of people experience no benefit from any kind of treatment. And then the remaining 80% fall into this kind of nebulous territory of like, you get better, but not all the way better. Mm -hmm. And Most people, at least I shouldn't say most people, I don't know what most people think. A lot of the people that I work with feel very pessimistic when they hear that, because what they hear is there's only a 10% chance that I'm going to get better. And something I always try to emphasize to them is falling somewhere into that mid-range does not mean that your life will not change dramatically. Mm -hmm. And again, as someone who, who has been on that journey myself, the difference between having a mental health condition that is in control of your life, that dictates when you sleep, when you eat whether you can enjoy anything, who you interact with, whether you leave the house today or not, whether you pursue a job or not, and having it be more of like an inconvenience kind of running in the background from time to time, but not being the primary decision maker in your life. That is a night and day difference, even though that second person may not be 100% 100% free of every internal pathological response they've ever had. Right. The freedom and the increase in quality of life that it, it, I think it's still always worth the work. And one last little aside, that 10% of people who doesn't get better. This is I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. This wasn't even a topic I had for today, but <laughs> I tend to think that's usually us and not them. Meaning I think that's often a reflection of their treatment team, not always being what they need. So I know I gave you like three possible things <laughs> you could respond to there, but thoughts on that.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think you're right. I think those 10% of people that are deemed not getting better, won't get better. If you take that subjectively, of course, you're going to think it's me, it's what I'm doing or not doing, but like the world and reality in itself is, is, primarily objective, we see it subjectively, but most of what we experience can be objective. And it's not just us, it's including our environment. It can be the clinicians or the treatment or the therapy or your environment. And I think, you know, as a social worker, if I think even on a macro level, super high in this country, parts parts of the country, systems within our country may have been a contributing factor to some of your symptoms, even if they're not, The bullet pointed criteria under major depressive disorder, for example, maybe it's low self esteem and maybe low self esteem significantly led to the initial presentation of your depression and you still experience low self esteem. Because we have horrible aesthetic and beauty marketing in this country, and so it could very easily be environmental as well, Um, but we know what the human brain does right it's going to personalize it. Good or bad, because if it's personal, then it's controllable, and then it's possibly solvable. But what that does is gets us in a horrible loop where then we feel like shit and don't actually want to try, or people see us feeling like shit and then treat us like shit or think we're a piece of shit, and then they don't help us either and and i And I say that because that's a lot of what happens for people in my population mm-hmm. it's we're deemed immediately uncurable, problematic dangerous violent manipulative and it's been really interesting being a clinician and having the experiences that I had while this disorder was active and just seeing the misunderstanding of what what it's really like for someone to even be presenting in in the in the expected ways of borderline um, and having the internal experience be so vastly different than what people think yeah
1: you know, you mentioned that, like, when you first got on social media, you didn't just immediately advertise, like, I have lived with this thing. And that was my journey, too. I didn't come right out and say, like, I am a psychologist who has depression and anxiety. I just, I just started making content. And I'd get a lot of comments from people saying, like, you seem to understand this better than any therapist I've ever worked with. And eventually, I was like, well, (laughs) there are reasons for that. Um, But like, yeah, what you said about, um, like, like, I don't I think I don't think this was the word you use, but it's the word I hear a lot in the depression population is the idea of treatment resistant people, yeah. right? And maybe this, maybe this is my own low self-esteem talking. But when I'm working with someone and they're not getting better in the way that I think they're capable of getting better, my first thought usually is: what am I doing wrong? Like what am I missing? How am I? Dropping the ball with this person rather than me thinking it's on them somehow. Mm -hmm. And even though I have such mixed feelings about that phrase in general, because the back of my business card for the North Star Psychological Center says specializing in treatment resistant depression and anxiety, because I know that's the terminology I need to use to find the people I want to work with. Mm -hmm. But I don't actually Mm -hmm. necessarily believe it's true. I I think usually it's just that there has been a mismatch in either the provider or the approach of the provider, or it, you know, and I can't speak, I'm not a psychiatrist, so I can't speak as much to the medication side of things. Mm -hmm. But in therapy, I've seen so many people with, with varying diagnoses, personality disorders, mood disorders, PTSD is a big one too, Mm -hmm. where I see it, where, where, Clinicians have just given up on them because they tried all the things they knew how to do, and that person did not experience significant growth and improvement from the existing skill set of the therapist. And yeah, the therapist right. then says, I think you must be treatment resistant. I don't know how to help you. And the client then often accepts and internalizes that label because it came from a professional who's supposed to know about this stuff and then views themselves through that lens. And that probably affects how they approach treatment. And that probably affects how other people approach them. And like you said, it can just become such a vicious cycle yeah. that is is so hard to break out of for people.
0: Completely. And I think the term treatment resistant, the resistant part immediately gets placed on the person.
1: Exactly.
0: Even if it's like, Medication and treatment resistant means that the brain isn't, you know, responding similar in, in the way that it's expected to for the medication. The person will still think it's me that's resistant because we have to, you know, we have to place it onto ourselves in order mm-hmm. to care about it, identify with it, accept it. So yeah, it can get tricky. Semantics is definitely tricky. And I, I like to play with semantics when it comes to borderline too. Like I mentioned, saying, you know, I don't have borderline personality disorder. But I think I'll always have borderline. I mean, I don't know, maybe when I'm 50 or 60, I, I won't have to be watching my brain as much as I have to watch my brain right now. And and yeah, I don't know.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, I love how you say that. And it's like, I'm kind of in the same boat where it, it it's not a major factor. You know, mental health is not a major factor in most of my life. But I also know that's because of the way I've organized and arranged my life. Like I have so much structure and lifestyle in place that have gotten me to this point. And I, I'm not going to test it. I assume right. that if I stopped doing all those things, I would go back to where I was before. And yeah, yeah I don't know if there's, it, I'll still have those moments where I'll have an emotional reaction to something and, and and at least internally. And I'll be aware of like, I don't think that's how most people would feel right now, whether or not I do anything with that reaction, you know, right. externally is a whole other question. But mm-hmm. yeah, I, I, who knows if if either of us ever get to the point where it's like this just isn't a thing at all anymore. But <laughs> to have it to the point where it's just not an issue the majority of the time is a night and day difference. Right. I am uh I'm jumping back in time like ten minutes now, but mm-hmm. you said a word earlier. That is definitely something I want to make sure we talk about today. And that word was manipulative, Mm -hmm. because so often I think that is the perception of the not only the behavior, but even just the emotional reactions of a person, probably with any personality disorder, but especially with borderline personality disorder. It's such a it's such a framework that like this person is manipulative. And one -hmm. of the questions I, I asked people to send in questions before we set this up and People ask, like, how can I, I'm paraphrasing, but essentially, how can I get people to see that not all of my emotional reactions to things are me trying to manipulate them? And sometimes I'm just mad, or sometimes I'm just scared. And it's it, it's because that's how I'm actually mm-hmm. feeling about the things that are happening. I don't want anything other than to have it be acknowledged and validated. I know it's yeah. not really a question, but thoughts on that?
0: I was chaotic for many, many years and the behaviors that I enacted could have seemed very manipulative. And I mean, I guess for reference for the listeners, I think I started experiencing borderline symptoms when I was like 13. I started working on my borderline symptoms 12 years ago at 22. In between that time, before I started working on them, I think I only actually enacted maybe three intentional, manipulative situations and behaviors that I can I can remember. And, and every other behavior was a response to my internal or external environment. There was no forethought. There was no planning, no intention. But what gets hard is that it's possible to be intentionally manipulative, anybody can be, and the average person would only react in the way that that someone with borderline is reacting if they were trying to be manipulative because the emotionality is so out of proportion that when, when emotions are out of proportion intentionally, what the person is trying to do is shift the situation make it so that the outcome of the situation is to their benefit. Now, what ends up happening with someone that has borderline personality disorder is that the emotions are so extreme, not intentionally most of the time, Mm -hmm. but they are so extreme that they end up shifting the situation or the conversation into the benefit of the person with borderline because there's safety concerns, there's habitual patterns of communication, there's fear. There's violence, really, whatever it is, and so that implies manipulation because it becomes sort of a selfish situation. Now, what I think is really important to remember is for the person that's experiencing the borderline symptoms from the outside. So the person's reacting onto them towards mm-hmm. them. The person receiving is gonna is gonna experience manipulation. They're gonna it and they need to understand and have some nuanced capabilities to say let me take a moment and not assume that this is intentional mm-hmm. however i'm not i'm not someone that's sort of like a, um what do people say these days like a sympathizer i'm not a borderline. Like apologist or
1: something yeah, yeah, yeah an apologist
0: because at the same time the person that has borderline needs to equally understand that their behaviors although not intentional are manipulating the situation not intentionally for benefit, but the situation itself. Like if the word manipulation doesn't imply personal intent to manipulate, it just means a transformation of something. And so the borderline person needs to understand that they are unintentionally manipulating the outcome of whatever situation that they're in. Both parties have to come to the table with this though, because if they don't, then the person that's experiencing the symptoms without borderline is gonna blame and shame. And then the person that has borderline that is manipulating the situation may also blame and shame that person for making them upset, for blaming them. And it becomes a really vicious cycle. And the fundamental problem underneath that is a lack of understanding and education. And that's why I show up the way that I do
1: that makes so much sense because you know anytime there's an interaction between two or more people whoever has the outwardly at least like outwardly visibly larger emotional reaction right the conversation yeah. and whatever happens after the conversation is usually going to be centered around the person who appears to have the bigger feelings and and I love how you kind of you you differentiate between Like the literal dictionary definition of manipulation, which yeah, if you go by that, everyone is technically manipulating things all the time, right? Mm -hmm. Because we are constantly doing Mm -hmm. and saying things that modify what happens around us. That's an unavoidable part of being a human being. Um, And just because a person... Typically has stronger emotional reactions than, yeah, the so-called statistical mean or whatever you want to say doesn't mean they are constantly trying to get other people to cater to them or wrap their worldview around that. That may be what ends up happening, especially if the other person or people involved don't really understand what this is, right? And probably correct me if I'm wrong, there they can almost get maybe be some enabling type patterns at times
0: that's a really interesting point because a lot of what the questions I get these days um because I've kind of talked generally about borderline on my platforms at this point what the symptoms are sort of how they present that now a lot of the questions are about my relationship because I've been with my husband for 18 years and as someone with borderline that's very unheard of to have long-term relationships to begin with but also to have gotten into this relationship almost right when my symptoms started and to have him be a part of why i started to get better he gave me the ultimatum um i think a little over five years into our relationship and i wrote about it in my books so it'll be really interesting for people to read about next year Um, But that's the main question I get is, okay, like, I think I've settled enough people's minds where they're like, fine, you can be a therapist with borderline. I don't think that you're harming your clients. I get it. You seem stable. I'll accept that people with borderline can get better. However, I don't think that they can have healthy relationships. And I feel like you probably have a bad relationship with your husband and don't say it. And that's so far from the truth. But I think that what you mentioned is really important, sort of leading off of what I just said, which was that you have to have a mutual understanding. It has to be a mutual effort. And people tend to think that that's not the way it should be. Mm -hmm. But that is the way that it is. And I firmly stand on that because there are so many people suffering on this planet. There are so many people with diagnosed mental health conditions and disorders. And we are connective beings. We need to rely on other people. And sometimes the partner needs to accept the way that their partner functions and that it is their responsibility if they wanna be with that person to not accept harm, abuse, or neglect, but to accept the condition and to accept that you are a part of that individual's environment. And if that individual is going to get better, you have to understand your part and how to do that. Mm-hmm.
1: I feel like at the core, this is this is really like like the the framework and and the mindset you're describing. It is is at its core the same as anyone who has a partner with any chronic health condition, right? right. Which is that it is not your fault that this person has this thing. You did not cause it. You may unknowingly and unintentionally exacerbated at times but at the end of the day it's not your fault however it is still true it is still yes. something this person has it right. will at times affect what they can do how they feel how they respond to you and and we kind of have <laughs> in in my household so I, I'm also I've been married for 16 years and we have two kids yes. yeah. we're all a little different but we're all a little different in unique ways. It's it's not like we're a household of people with the exact same. We each have our idiosyncrasies in our responses. And we've actually sort of developed, at least I, I might be the only one who uses it consistently, but <laughs> we've <laughs> sort of developed a, um almost like a mantra in our household of, you know, when someone responds in some certain way, remembering like, this is their pathology. And it's not, because if you take those responses personally and think, oh, I, you know, I must be really out of line to have created that emotional reaction in this person. It's when you personalize it, then you unfortunately tend to get defensive or oh even God. or yes. even aggressive at times. And then it's you just poured gasoline on the fire. And now this thing is just gonna burn for a long, long time. And if yeah. you can just take that step back and say, this is just something this person is dealing with. This is just part of a chronic health condition that they have and I understand that it affects them sometimes and I'm not going to personalize that and and we're just going to work on it together. It's it's that's what you do if your partner had cancer, right? Or a chronic pain anything anything chronic. It's it's the same rules, right?
0: Exactly. It is the same rules. And I think it's important to also mention that there is no perfect partner. And expecting Either partner to be perfect, someone with a mental health condition, but even someone without, is unreasonable. And you know, this year, earlier this year, um, when I was pregnant with, or last year, there's not, it can't be earlier this year. There's not very many days in it.
1: <laughs> right. Um,
0: last year, twenty twenty three, um, I found out that I had an underlying condition beneath my borderline, and it really shook things up. In my household because it made a lot of sense people can really not tell when i'm a public figure most people on my platform doubt it they doubt that it's accurate and we know it to be true in our household so incredibly significantly i'm just very good i think i'm good at acting mm-hmm. <laughs> um showing up the way i need to show up mm-hmm. which is sur- a survival thing um he We hit some rocky months in the beginning of last year with accepting the conditions that I have, with learning how to work with them, with learning that they won't change, um, some of my sensitivity levels, some of my social inabilities in person, face-to-face, and what that caused was me, now that we had more information, me as the person that has the disorder and conditions, to expect him to immediately understand like he did with when i only had one condition to immediately understand to immediately behave and create the perfect environment for me to not get triggered and to not get overwhelmed and we got into this sort of state where where we were sort of starting to divide for a little because it was so overwhelming and i was pregnant with morning sickness trying to open a business it was really chaotic and i actually hit a point personally where because he wasn't able to be as perfect as I needed him to be when I was seriously struggling, I started to experience suicidality. Mm. And it was very intense. I've had passive suicidality since I was 15. And I know this is something that you share and talk about on your platforms with your audiences. Um, So I think it's important to mention is that I I felt very hopeless at the time and and fast. And the hopelessness came on in on I mean I was it was I was struggling, but it was one day hopelessness helplessness massive argument with my husband, and I remember saying one specific thing to him. And I was writing my book at the time about the unconscious and he was helping me with a section about how. Humans always judge, we have to, it's how we survive. Mm -hmm. And I felt like he was really judging my need for routine, my need or my sensitivities, my emotional like thought processes. And and it was a very chaotic moment that happened. And I said, why can't you just stop judging me? And he kind of acted like a little asshole and kind of played it on the book that we were writing. He goes, I'm always gonna judge you, Courtney, Mm -hmm. I'm a human. And I was like, well, one, I was like, don't use my own stuff against <laughs> me, you know? But but then I thought I took that seriously. He meant it to hurt me. We were in an argument, right? Yeah, like, he probably. meant it to hurt me. and But I took it very literally that I'm gonna be judged for not being as people expect, normal, typical, reasonable at times for the rest of my life. And I know we're talking about borderline today, the underlying condition for those of you that are wondering is autism spectrum condition. And I say, or autism spectrum disorder. I think I'm pretty. my life functioning is very altered by it. I think that not every person that's autistic has a disorder. So I like saying condition also. Um, it's, there are aspects of my wiring that will remain the same. I can find coping skills for them. I can find ways to reduce that behavior but it will always happen. And so if you're someone listening and you have a condition where there are just some symptoms, some criteria, or just some behaviors that you're like, you know what, like I know my brain really enjoys this and thinks it's gonna help me stay alive. And I'm old enough to the point where this is probably gonna be some symptoms I'm gonna be managing ongoing for my life. And that's okay because you're strong and you're capable and you're powerful and you can do it. And for anybody that tells you that you can't, you can. But it's important to keep in mind that if there are aspects of you or aspects of your partner Mm -hmm. that are going to be difficult to change, you will likely judge them Mm -hmm. because you are a human being. Now, you might not want to say it in such a mean way, but so is life. When people are angry, they say things. And, And so it's just important to remember that the person with the condition or disorder is not always going to have the best responses, and neither is the partner. Because while one person's suffering with the condition and one person isn't, they're both human beings, or all the partners are human beings. And we really can't escape that. We have to learn how to work with it.
1: I feel like the word judgment is a lot like the word manipulation, in that, you know, we think of it in in often a very like intentional negative shaming way but if if you just think of it technically again we are literally all doing it all the time as you said um and it's interesting that you brought up autism spectrum disorder too because i mentioned everyone in my family is a little bit different my daughter has autism spectrum disorder Mm -hmm. and trying to find that middle ground basically that you've described with your husband is something my wife and i have also tried to figure out with her and I think at first, as she when she was younger, she didn't... I mean, I never really know what's going on in anyone else's head, but she didn't react as though she was having a lot of strong sensory reactions to things. But in the past couple of years, that has changed, and she is having a lot more visible sensory reactions to things. Yeah. And, and when that first came up, we were kind of trying to do this sort of like exposure therapy type thing with her where we'd... I, I can't explain it without specifics. So like her big thing right now is... When things are shut, car doors, drawers, things like that, you know, depending on the speed and the velocity, it makes you know it, it nearly infinite number of different sounds, right? Yes. There is an exact way that she wants each one to sound. Yes. First, we we kind of had a rule of like we'll. We'll give it three tries. We'll do our best. And, mm-hmm. and you know, if, if it doesn't, if it's not quite right after three, you just kind of have, we'll, we'll try to help you use coat. We wouldn't just like leave her alone, but like, we'll help you do deep breathing. We'll distract. And what we've come to more recently is just really an understanding that like, and it's hard for me, like I cannot perceive the difference that she is perceiving. I literally, yeah. like the level of precision mm-hmm. that her brain has, I don't have it. And so to me, as just a knee-jerk reaction, it feels like she's being ridiculous. Cause I can't I can't tell the difference. Yes. But I I I believe and I understand that that this is not something she's doing to me. She's not just trying to be a pain. She hears something that I cannot hear. Yes. And as her dad, I think it is important for me to respect that and do my best to try to like function in a way that is not sensory torture for her. Mm-hmm. while also knowing like, I'm also gonna get frustrated about this because I can't hear what you're hearing. I can't tell the difference. When you're saying that was too fast, too slow, it all sounds the same to me. So it's mm-hmm. like, yeah, as the as the support person for that particular condition anyway, it's like simultaneously respecting you, but also regulating myself Because if I don't also attend to my own emotions, I'm going to end up getting frustrated. And that doesn't help you or me. It's a win win if I stay regulated.
0: Yeah. That's, I'm, thank you for sharing that example. I haven't met someone that has a child and they've described their autistic behaviors in ways that I experience them as well. It's actually a little bit make me a little emotional because it's very like i if you if any person understands how human bodies work how the human brain works none of us experience reality and life the same yet there are enough of us on the planet that experience it similarly enough to where we have in the past even through the development of our field of psychology, assumed that there is a normal, mm-hmm. assumed that there is a way that human brains are supposed to hear certain sounds, but that's just not the case. Mm-hmm. All the animal kingdom, we all, they experience so- all the senses in varying ways, but we as humans expect them to be the same. Mm-hmm. And that is so incredibly limiting. And it's a little bit easier to understand, I think, from, you know, if you if you talk about autism, I think at times, autistic behaviors can be violent or abusive because people can get uncontrollable. And it depends on the level of of functionality, but it's less of a scary disorder for people that don't have it. And when I take it back to borderline, even it makes sense to say daddy and daughters hearing sensitivities are different, therefore there needs to be an adjustment and understanding in the household. When you think about emotional sensitivities in someone that has borderline, that's something that they experience, they're so much more sensitive to Mm -hmm. than another person. Because the response can be so scary for the person without it, the judgment is so much more significant. Mm -hmm. And that judgment leads to a lack of understanding. And I think that fundamentally not understanding what you understand in your daughter and what I understand being someone that has borderline and what you understand being someone that has depression and anxiety, we understand it because we know that we are different yeah, and or that we're perceived as different. The people who don't want to be different, that might not even have a disorder. The fact that they think that they're the normal non different ones is why the judgment starts in the first place. Mm-hmm. We are all human beings and we all actually experience everything at some point. It's just, the, again, the proportionality, the yeah. frequency and how much it makes us suffer.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it again, it's like that core thing for all of these various conditions we're talking about autism, borderline depression, anxiety something they all have in common, the manifestation, the the, the the subject matter is different, but something they all have in common is when this thing happens, what I feel is different than what you feel. And typically yes. like it's stronger, right? Whether that's yeah. a sensory stimuli, a, a relational stimuli, a, right. a, a self-esteem thing. And, and the core, like really just going back to what you said about, you know, what is both people's role in this interaction is, both people need to understand, Mm -hmm. you can feel something different than what I can feel. This does not feel the same to you as it does for me. Mm -hmm. The person who doesn't have that reaction needs to understand that so that they can avoid personalizing it, but know that this reaction that this other person having is real. This Mm -hmm. is not them behaving in some certain way because they're trying to obtain some secondary goal. This is their genuine reaction to this stimuli, even though it would not be yours. Yes. But but the person now, this doesn't apply as much to my seven-year-old daughter. But if we're talking about adults here, or teenagers, right? The person having that reaction also needs to understand this is real. And I am really feeling this, but this is not what everyone would feel in this situation. And so people are Mm -hmm. not always going to respond to me in the way I want them to. Not always intentionally. They're not always just trying to be jerks or invalidating. They may just literally lack the capacity to understand how I could get here from there. And I have the I have the, it's the silliest example, but it's something I go back to time and time again with my daughter. I don't believe that I am on the autism spectrum disorder, but I do have some sensory sensitivities at times. And mm-hmm. there's this moment I remember, I think I was like nine years old. We were out, me and my family. We're out on this huge lake in this paddle boat. And do you know what a paddle boat is? Yes. So yeah, you (laughs) live in California, right? Of course, you know what a paddle boat is. So as you know, they are slow, right? And it's this big lake. And I don't know what the seat on this boat Mm -hmm. was made out of. Uh, my, my skin had some reaction to it. I don't know what it was. I have never been so physically uncomfortable in my entire life. And I'm there with my mom, my dad, my brother and my sister. And I'm like, what is wrong with this boat? What is wrong with this seat? This is awful. And they're all like, what are you talking about? This is, this is, no one else was experiencing that. And we're like a mile from shore in this boat that goes about two miles an hour, I'm like, I am just stuck in this misery right now, mm-hmm. and I try to think like, is that what yeah. she feels like all the time when there's mm-hmm. sensory? Like, I can't even imagine. You know, that was a that was an acute. As soon as we got back to the dock, I was like, Oh, thank goodness, I'm fine. I'm going in the house, and I'm never doing that again. Yeah. But she doesn't have that option because the right. sensory stimuli doesn't end in her world. And I, exactly. I, I don't know what that feels like, but I can tr- I can take that hour or whatever it was in my life and try to extrapolate. Like, what if it was always like that? And when I try to view it through that lens, yeah, it helps me be a lot more patient with her responses.
0: Yes, that is so much. That's so much of it. It's just, just understanding that you don't know it all and that you're judging only through what you do know and that it's limited. Mm -hmm. Every person on the planet, if they thought that way, considering everything that's going on in the world, there'd be a lot less death, a lot less violence, and a lot more connection.
1: One last, uh, I know we're getting close to our to our end of time here, and you've probably already given a couple examples of this. But one other question I really wanted to make sure we got to was what some of the biggest turning points or game changers have been for you on your journey from getting to this place where this to use your own words, where things were very chaotic for you to a point in life now where, like this is very well controlled and you're you're pursuing your goals and, you know, you have your professional goals and, and you have a child and a healthy marriage. Maybe tell me like, I know this could be an entire hour, but like, tell me about a couple of the really big turning points where you felt things going in that direction.
0: Thank you for asking that. (sighs) Um, well, (laughs) people say ultimatums don't work. It worked Mm -hmm. for me. Um, one of the the first turning point for me was right before I actually got diagnosed, but I was, I had it, I had it. Yeah. It's very, very obvious. Um, it was a uh, ultimatum from my husband where he said, change or I'll leave you. And one thing to say about that though, is that he was saying it for me. Mm-hmm. Like he would have left me for me and that's so heartbreaking actually. It makes me emotional to think about, but like he 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 would have just dealt with the hurt that I caused him his whole life probably. And the only reason that he threatened me um was because he didn't want me to be hurting myself anymore. Mm-hmm. And that's just fucking brilliant, I think. I mean, it's just he's so incredible. <sighs> um so that was the first thing though. It was um and he you know, he he was the first person to show me real love what that really meant I didn't I I think my parents could have but the circumstances made it very difficult for both of them so because he loved me so just like fucking purely and perfectly it was the worst thing ever like worst thing that could ever happen to me it was scary it made me feel not good enough it kind of accentuated everything i'm not worth this and so i was terrible for many years and then he finally gave me the ultimatum and that's why it worked it worked because i knew that in his heart it was for me and also because he had never treated me poorly and was not a selfish person and so he wasn't saying you're damaged fix yourself because you're ruining me he said let's help you not get damaged and let's help you be healed so that was the first thing yeah i was 22 it was 12 years ago The second thing was growing up, I was very obsessed with celebrity rehab and sober house these Mm -hmm. shows that were on MTV or VH one or something. Um, And that's when I knew I wanted to be a clinician because I grew up under the poverty line and close enough to Hollywood to think that that was going to be the solution to everything Um, money fame power Mm -hmm. and when I. I finally started working in the clinical field. I ended up in Malibu working with celebrities, actors. Mm -hmm. Um, And I very quickly realized at that point that what I was striving for wasn't the solution. And that was a turning point for me because I thought I'm so damaged. I'm never gonna be able to reach this point of success thinking I must fully heal myself and cure this incurable issue that I have. And what that did for me starting my career was realize that if I'm trying to push myself too fast, and if I'm trying to depersonalize what I have and just make it seem like it's this entity that I must rid myself of, Mm -hmm. then I'm doing a lot more damage to myself than good. So it allowed me to level the playing field of what my goals were, which allowed me to focus more on myself and realize that I was being a lot harder on myself than I needed to be. That was eight years ago i didn't have any other turning points until last year Mm. and my final turning point was getting that underlying diagnosis and realizing that i spent the majority of my life identifying with a disorder that i fundamentally know is caused by other things you're not born with borderline it doesn't come and sit on your shoulder one day it's developed from something and once and i knew that but once i really knew and could Fully conceptualize that I developed these personality traits because of how insufferable my life was Mm -hmm. interpersonally sensorily for so long, I was able to realize that I'm not these things. I am not someone with borderline personality disorder. I'm a human being that has personality traits as a result of my life and the label for that is borderline now I knew that. Clinically and intellectually, and empathetically for my clients, and but I felt it. Yeah, I felt it this year, and although I have not met the criteria five out of nine five out of nine criteria for a while, I think the symptoms I do still experience lack of sense of self is one of the big ones um, that sort of fell away a little bit. Because I was able to realize that that kind of part of the reason for my lack of sense of self is this other thing yeah, and not just borderline. I mean, they're both developmental. Mm -hmm. So I think if I'm summarizing those three things, the first one is someone that actually gave a fucking shit about me enough to almost leave me. And for me to give enough of shit about myself to let that not happen. I think the second thing is finding a purpose for my life and sort of redirecting that and making sure it felt good for me, which coincidentally I ended up being someone on TV as a therapist helping people that are famous. When you stop trying, if it's supposed to happen, maybe it will. And then the third thing is is getting a complete grasp on the development of who I am as a person. So for everyone out there trying to heal, I think those three things are really important. And and the and the, and the person who actually gives a shit about you doesn't have to be someone that is your partner. Mm-hmm. Honestly, it can be a child that that they that the parent finally opens up to. It could be a family member or a friend or a coworker, so someone that gives a shit about you. Life purpose and really understanding yourself, myself. Yeah. Those things are a privilege and they're so, so hard to accomplish and they are fully possible. Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> I love every single part of that message. And Maybe that person, the first person to really show up for you the way you need them to be, maybe could even be a therapist, right?
0: Absolutely, absolutely. I think that's so much of why we're here and yeah. why our field exists too. I would love to be out of a job because human beings communicated well in their house and treated each other well in their family Mm -hmm. and that schools taught us how the hell we function so that we can make better choices for ourselves, instead of being manipulated by the society that we live in.
1: Absolutely well. I think we should probably wrap it up there for today, but really quick, before I let you go, would you mind saying a little bit about where people can find you if they want to hear more of what you have to say?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So you can learn more about me on my website, thetruthdoctor.com, and on YouTube, TikTok, and Instagram, my handle is doctor. And if you Google me, there's a bunch of stuff on there too.
1: (laughs) And when's your book coming out? Or is it out already?
0: My book, I just finished the manuscript. So we are not releasing it this year because it is such a wonderful election year. Um, (laughs) We're gonna release it in March of 2025.
1: Got it. So people should later this year, maybe keep an eye out for pre-order links perhaps. Yeah,
0: thank you for helping me. Yeah, sometime (laughs) in the summer, May or June, there'll probably be a pre-order campaign. Um, And that's actually really exciting. If you've liked the way I've spoken or my perspective on things, Um, if you do pre-order the book, you're going to get personal access to me, which is pretty cool. Most people don't get that. So stay tuned.
1: (laughs) All right, Courtney, thank you so much for making time for this today. And I will talk to you soon. All right.
0: Yeah. Thank you, Scott.